Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, two Hamilton counselors are calling for an independent review on the police response at Pride last month. Last week, it was unveiled that the Forensic Pathology Unit here in Hamilton is closing down, which is very concerning to lawyers. And Iran has broken the limits set by the 2015 nuclear deal for enriching uranium. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're looking, I think, as a community to try to find some resolution, some some bridge building going on uh, to try to rectify and assuage the concerns of the conflict that has uh, reared its head uh, since the, the Pride celebrations, of course, and the incident that happened at Gage Park. And, and let's be clear about this. What happened at Gage Park did not start the the acrimonious relationship that seems to exist, but it did expose it. And it's on the front burner, and I think we need to talk about this. And there have been attempts by some to do that, uh, others uh, not so much, uh, until they feel that uh, certain other uh, things have to be addressed and talked about. Uh, I, I don't know where we're going to go on this necessarily, but uh, the longer this thing goes on, the, 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 the more it festers, and that's not good for anybody involved and certainly not for the community at large. Uh, in some of the newest developments, of course, on Friday, the mayor did go ahead with his meeting with his uh, two LGBTQ uh, individuals that uh, he wanted as advisors and, and consultants on this whole situation. Uh, we're told that many other people uh, from that community who were invited declined that invitation. We don't even know who was at the meeting, frankly. But we also know the two counselors met with Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert last week. Uh, and those two counselors uh, are now calling for an independent review into the police response at Pride. And uh, the mayor has apologized. So the, uh, there's a number of things to talk about. And uh, at some point, we have to have a discussion about what we're going to do going forward on this, too. Uh, Larry Deany is a guy who's been there, done that, uh, as a former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He's also, of course, a member of the Police Services Board uh, for many years. And uh, he joins us to give his perspective on this. Good morning, Larry. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm fine. Good. Let me let me ask you, maybe just as a, a beginning here as an overview, uh, the developments we've seen over the last four or five days, the mayor's attempt at meeting to bring people together, uh, the two councillors' initiative here for an independent review. Are, are we going down the right road here? Well, of course, I don't know all the details, and I certainly wasn't at the meeting. I'm glad it happened, the meeting uh, uh, with the uh, community or some members of the community and the mayor and the police, <clears throat> and also I wasn't at the meeting that the two councillors had with the police chief and uh, and the mayor as well. So I, I can only glean from uh, what I read in the paper, uh, try to understand what's written between the lines as well, and and go back to my own experience in terms of how these things evolve. And I can only say that it's a step in the right direction. When people are talk talking, uh, it's always positive. It's got to be. Uh, you know, you sit people down and uh, get them to try to understand, uh, you know, the other perspective, if there are different perspectives, and uh, and uh, the attempts at trying to make things better. It's always got to be positive. So I think these were initial steps, and, and, and uh, I'm hoping positive steps leading to some concrete uh, actions and solutions. I want to get into the the reaction and maybe the responsibilities of the Police Services Board in just a couple of minutes, because you can obviously, as I say, go back to your experiences on this as well. Uh, but uh, And by the way, I should just mention as an aside, we've reached out to a number of different people that uh, that we think uh, have some involvement in this, and it's uh, very difficult to get anybody to go on the record here. And that may well be because it seems that any time, and, and you've experienced this, Larry, anytime anybody goes on the record on this, no matter w- what issue that it is or what side they take, uh, there's instant vilification from the other side on social media. Uh, so, no, uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I find that ironic because... I started this whole thing by by pleading for dialogue when people were refusing to speak uh, or to participate in meetings, and I and I simply made the the simple statement that you know dialogue is better, engagement is better than non-engagement, and then people started attributing all kinds of things um, on me for making that simple plea and request, and and that's the irony <clears throat> that people want to sort of. Um, you know, uh, voice their displeasure and pain, and there is some, and, and legitimately so, but not sit down with those that might be allies in trying to deal with these things. And to me, that's very frustrating. It's got to be frustrating for the mayor and, and, and the police chief and anybody who wants to try to get a handle on what to do to move this agenda forward. And I just can't understand the logic of, 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 that, um, of that strategy. Um, other than to, to to maybe suggest and try to understand that there is great pain and, and distrust 
and people aren't willing to sit down with people that they distrust. But, but Bill, we know from experience that, you know, if you're going to resolve problems, you, you can't do it among friends. You, you got to meet with those that you disagree with and be very frank and blunt and professional and civil and all of that stuff. But, but frank and pointing out the, the, the shortcomings and, and then charting a course towards making it better. And that's what's uh, unfortunate with people not even willing to come and, and speak for fear that they're going to be lambasted. Uh, says something about, you know, this, this, these solitudes that we've been, that we've created or, or have existed and are now being exposed. So, so let's, let's talk a little about police services board then and their role. And, and, and again, I, I think, some people in the community, and I'm going again by a number of the comments I've seen on social media, uh, some have been extreme, I think, as I mentioned in my commentary at 8.10 this morning. Uh, in the last couple of days, I, I mean, I've heard calls for the mayor to resign, for the police chief to be fired. Uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, and and that, kind of, that kind of dialogue at this stage is not helpful in any stretch of the imagination. And uh, we've, we've got to get on the same page. Even if we're going to you know, have some uncomfortable moments, that dialogue has to take place. Uh, and it looks as if uh, the next major event that may, in fact, be an opportunity for that to happen is going to be next week at the Police Services Board meeting, uh, not this coming Thursday, but the Thursday after that. Uh, talk to us about the role that the PSB would play in a situation like this, Larry. I mean, well, a number of citizen members and some elected members are on that board. Yes, and, and that's a, an important question because one has to understand, and I've spoken to some some people on, on both sides of this divide because of my... Uh, you know, simple comments on social media. Um, and um, and uh, people need to understand several things about the police, first of all. That the police's job is to maintain the peace and intervene if they see evidence of law-breaking and then uh, through the courts bring, uh, you know, whoever has broken the law to justice. And so the police have been criticized for arresting, you know, three on one side and only one on the other side and, and for not being quick enough to respond to, to the problems at Cage Park, uh, even though, and I find this a little bit ironic, they weren't invited to be there uh, and, and show their colors and, and so on. So, I mean, that needs to, to, you know, the facts need to be laid out very clearly on, on why that happened, how that happened, and what the police uh, presence there did or did not do, because there's some confusion around that right now. But the police are not a private security firm. They're not there to, to side with one side or the other. They're there to maintain the peace. And we saw examples of that. I mean, if you look at today's newspaper, the Hamilton Spectator, it shows at City Hall Forecourt, again on Saturday, apparently uh, two sides were there. Now, there weren't any major incidents, but the police actually erected physical barriers to keep one side on one side and the other side on the other side um, to keep them away from, from physically being near each other that might increase the risk of, of some violence or inappropriate behavior. So that's their role. Their role isn't to say, you know, you guys are good and you guys are bad, uh, even though they might have some private opinions, and I certainly do, and, and I don't side with the fascists. I don't side with the yellow vesters. I side with the LGBTQ plus community in terms of their wanting to be integrated in a peaceful manner, accepted uh, in a peaceful manner, and celebrate their own identity in a peaceful manner, like anybody else would want to do. I side with them. And I'm sure that the police, in terms of, you know, if they had to draw some moral equivalency, would side with that as well. But their role, essentially, is to maintain the peace and then deal with those who break the law. And that's why the, uh, the vandals, uh, the the uh, anarchists, who also I'm assuming were on the side of the of the gay uh, the, the queer community, uh, they were arrested because of some uh, law breaking that was perceived to have been done, and now some of them are going through the courts on that. So the police's role is exactly that: is to maintain all order and peace, and deal with law breaking if they see it occur. The police services board is not a, uh, a hands-on operational board, as we know. It's a policy board. It's a governance board. And it's, its job is to provide oversight to, to, to the police, the police chief specifically, but through him, you know, the senior command and, and the, activity that, uh, the activities that they overtake, undertake, rather. 
and their job is to provide resources. So they deal with budget issues and some policies as well. But they don't get involved in operating the police service and saying, you know, do this and do that. They ask questions about trends and what the police chief is doing and explain to the community through us what your intentions are with opioids or, um, you know, major crime or whatever it happens to be. And I'm sure that questions will be asked about what happened during the Gage Park Pride Day. As, as there and, should be. And, and, as and there should be. Because yeah. of the impact it's had on community. Absolutely. It, 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 and, and I'm glad to hear that some councils like Council Jackson and the mayor is open uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, a further scrutiny of, of what happened, all with the intention of not necessarily recrimination, unless, you know, somebody was not doing their job, but in terms of making sure that we always do better. And that should provide some comfort and solace to, uh, to uh, the queer community that feels besieged right now and not supported. And I understand those feelings. I've spoken to some of the members of that community, and, and I understand that there is real angst about that. Um, but more the reason why they should be engaging and participating rather than disengaging and refusing to go to meetings, I think. Well, there's a couple of things that we need to uh, clarify here, too, because I think there's there's some blurriness that's happening here with some people's response and some of the suggestions. Uh, first and foremost, city council has no oversight over the police. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's for a very good reason. As I mentioned again in the commentary, uh, it's, it's a provincial statute, and the reason why is because they don't want political influence over police decisions, uh, because the possibilities of, of running rampant on that and abusing that power uh, could be terrible for any community by any city council. So they just say, no, you can't do that. Uh, they get a say on the budget, but that's about it. So, you know, the, su- the suggestion that these guys can initiate an investigation is, is not a non-starter. The police services board are the ones that are going to ask the questions, and they're the ones that can make some determinations that, hey, I think we got a problem here. And then there's a number of different things that they can do here. But this puts an immense, an immense amount of pressure on the police services board right now. Uh, not necessarily they solve this, but I think to, to, Kimmy, to, to you know, I'd wade through the chafe here and get right to the heart of the matter here. And I, I, I think there's a little bit too much going on in the side issues here right now, and we're losing focus on what needs to be done, and that's, that's to get some answers and then starting to move forward. Yeah, I agree with you. I think your commentary was bang on, uh, quite frankly. And we saw at the provincial level when the premier tried to install his um, family friend as the head of the OPP, what the reaction was there. And, and the politicians meddling in law enforcement leads to all kinds of uh, problems uh, in terms of the operational side of that. And, and that's why we have a police services board with uh, some members of council on the board, but some uh, provincially appointed uh, citizen members on that board as well. And when the police chief for the city of Hamilton is hired, it's not the city that hires, it's the police services board that does the hiring as well, so that there's an arm's length relationship to the political process, quite frankly. And that, I think, is is healthy and good. So, you know, I've read, uh, you know, about Councillor Nan and Councillor Wilson's uh, um, more questions to be asked. Uh, uh, Now, I haven't read, and maybe they have voiced, and I haven't checked their own websites as to what questions those are. Uh, You would think that if they have questions that were not answered at the uh, at the meeting that they had, the private meeting they had with the police chief and the mayor, that they would uh, um, um, indicate what those questions might be so that we get some sense of what was uh, left unanswered. Uh, but right now, those two members are not of council, are not members of the police services board, and so their questions would have to be taken up by members of the police services board. I'm hoping that they are. And Councillor Jackson again indicated that he's going to ask all the appropriate questions. Uh, probably there will be other members of uh, the board that will do the same thing. And then it'll be up to the board to decide, based on the answers that they hear, what they would like to see done with all of that information. But, you know, politics aside, and some of this is politics, and listen, I've been there and I've participated in it uh, as well on, on, on different issues, and people try to stake out their, you know, political positions Uh, for whatever the the reasons there are. But all of that aside, and that's the reality of life, 
really, we've got right now a community that feel a community, uh, the and, and let me call it the queer community, LGBTQ plus community, that feels somehow besieged and not supported. And that's not healthy for the larger community. Even if you're not a member of that particular group, you are a member of a community that includes that group. And if we want a healthy community, everybody needs to be that's law-abiding, and, and, and I'm excluding the vandals and the anarchists and the yellow vesters and the fascists from this because I don't think they intend, from what I've read, I don't think that they intend good things uh, as outcomes to the community other than maybe chaos um, uh, and destruction for their own agendas. But most of us, most of us, the 99.999% of us Hamiltonians want to see a healthy, supportive, inclusive tolerant, accepting, loving community. And I don't want to be Pollyannish about this, but that's the only way we make progress. If we all kind of have good outcomes in mind and not chaos. Former Hamilton Mayor and uh, former Police Board uh, member as well, uh, Larry DeAnne. Larry, always great to get your insight. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we'll uh, do a break. And, and it's so important to have this going on. And I, I don't know what's going to happen between now and, that, and the Police Services Board meeting. Uh, and, and it might get a little heated during that meeting. I, I understand that because some of the questions that may be asked may be uncomfortable and some of the answers that they receive uh, may, may not be what they want to hear. But unless we lay stuff up on the table and, and be candid about this, we're never going to make any progress on this. So uh, here's hoping that the Police Services Board understands the gravity of the situation and approaches it accordingly. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week it was uh, unveiled uh, that the forensic pathology unit here in Hamilton is shutting down. Uh, they've lost their, their leader, unfortunately, through uh, death by cancer some time ago. But So there's an expectation that there's going to be some rejigging and hopefully some funding for this. Instead, they've decided to close the whole thing down. Uh, I've talked to people in the legal profession. I've talked to people in law enforcement who are very concerned about this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Verkam Singh, who is the president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Verkam, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill, and thank you for having us on. Were you surprised by the announcement? It is. Uh, it seems to be a change from what the position uh, was sent over about six months ago. And um, when we look at the growing uh, trends in the city with the larger population uh, base and uh, the number of uh, players involved, from the teaching hospitals to the uh, the uh, research facilities and uh, the courts, uh, which depend on uh, this type of information, as, as timing is very critical in the uh, in the court process. The uh, the death I was referring to, of course, was uh, that of uh, John Fernandez, who passed away uh, sadly through cancer. Who was a stalwart and, and a champion, of course, for the forensic unit there and. Uh, uh, the expectation, I guess, was that, well, we're going to have to find somebody to replace him. That's why I think a lot of people were caught off guard by this announcement to just shut the whole operation down. I mean, one of the, the big issues is, is that, um, the, the, and, I, and I'm not sure if the listeners uh, are well aware of this, but uh, if we've already covered it, the, the issue is, is that pathologists have an obligation not only to the criminal trial process and meeting with investigators, but also defense counsel who rely on their expertise and direct access to that knowledge in cases where timing is so important. Um, you know, with families, you also have uh, families who want to have contact with, you know, the last person uh, that had contact with their loved one. And that's that's really, a, really emotionally challenging. So if we have a situation where this is now being offloaded into Toronto, it's going to cause a real disconnect for the residents of Hamilton who are dealing uh, with the struggle of, of the most vulnerable time in their in their lives. I, let me connect the dots here, if I could, and, and I, I don't know if this is related or not. Obviously, it's pretty hard to get a direct answer from uh, government officials about this. But we all know, of course, that uh, a few years ago, in 2013, there was a, a $500 million state-of-the-art forensic service uh, and uh, complex that was built uh, in, in the GTA. Uh, is this a justification for this? Is this the matter of simply, uh, let's let's just bring everything together in here to try to, to, to justify that, that kind of an expense and, and, and you know, centralize everything? That's, that's definitely a valid consideration. I mean, the economics have to work. But when we compare that to what they say the savings will be, that has to be balanced against the amount of time that will be expended by law enforcement uh, 
traveling back and forth, spending time in Toronto, and the uh, additional expense to lawyers, whether they're civil or criminal, involved in the investigative and trial process. And so when we look at the numbers, if we, if we have uh, approximately 1,300 uh, forensic examinations that are done in Hamilton being sent to Toronto, how will that delay or cause additional costs for the participants that feed from that information? Maybe you could walk us through the process about how this is supposed to work, uh, because it's. A, it, it, I'm trying to rationalize in my head here what they've told us about this uh, and how this is going to make for a more efficient system. And I'm I'm not getting to the same end lock that they did on situations like this. Uh, they present a case that it might be cheaper to do it this way, but is it going to be more efficient? And I don't, I'm not so sure they answered that. That's really where uh, our position on behalf of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association and our members, and I think I would speak for some of the prosecutors uh, in terms of what the common issues are, is exactly that, Bill. You have a um, a very real uh, reconsideration effort that's required. I don't think that it's been uh, fully explored with the stakeholders. I mean... The biggest uh, issue, I think, uh, if we look at two big issues, the, one of them is access by the participants in the justice system to local practitioners. And the second is the family members. I mean, family members who are subject to this type of unfortunate situation, they want to be able to know uh, what's going on. And when you have this, you know, the body uh, or the deceased is in Toronto, uh, there's a disconnect, and that's important. And I think when we look at the history of, of uh, pathology in our city, we have amongst the gold standard in the society. Have we not seen examples in the past, though, where if it's not an efficient system, if there are uh, mistakes, and, and that's always a possibility when you, you try to centralize things, uh, that you don't have that, that, that almost one-on-one situation, uh, that can have a dramatic effect on, on well, in, in a, first of all, in an investigation and a subsequent trial if there's incorrect information pre- being presented. Well, it's, no one's indicating, and, and there's no intention to indicate that there would be substandard um, uh, or there'd be issue with quality, but the 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 bottom line is, Hamilton needs services to manage the issues that take place in this community. Whether it is substance abuse issues, uh, you know, a forensic pathologist would determine the cause, and they would look at trends, uh, causes of death, and that's a, a, a drug uh, overdoses are a major issue in our city, and knowing uh, having that information locally is important in toronto it gets it gets diluted into into a uh, sort of a mega system and we we uh, require it i mean there's six area six area hospitals in the region uh, you have an international uh, university in terms of teaching and i i, I understand there indi- the you know the article indicates that there will still be uh, teaching uh, components uh, but residents need to have real life experience and that's that's uh, i mean that's sort of getting sidetracked a little bit but i think it's going to dilute um the capacities that we currently have here and we have these capacities and 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 the local pathology unit is important to the work of the courts the numbers here are are Interesting, uh, and and you've talked about some of the u- uniquely Hamilton problems. Uh, the stats I saw here in the the piece that uh, was uh, published on the weekend uh, suggest here that uh, only three pathologists here in the Hamilton area uh, covering about thirteen hundred cases a year. Uh, but as you say, there are some of those which are unique here. Uh, you, you've talked about the overdose problem and and the opioid problem here. Uh, we know that's a, a province-wide, it's a national concern and, and a crisis, frankly, but the numbers here in Hamilton are higher than the provincial average. You would think that that indicates that some area of expertise would be needed here as opposed to shipping it down the road. Well, from from the perspective, I think, if we look at the law enforcement perspective, and they have to be very careful about what uh, statements they make publicly on, on this issue, but I think uh, what was clear is that law enforcement is concerned about delay, and when there's a delay from law enforcement in gathering evidence, that causes a further delay at the trial process or to defense counsel who need to access that information. 
and defense counsel uh, routinely can contact the forensic medical examiner, call them up, schedule a meeting, and have that done a lot more efficiency when it's when it's done locally. When when you compare that to being shipped out into Toronto, there's going to be a, a natural delay that's going to take place. And the overriding concern is is that the Supreme Court has indicated timelines on how trial process is supposed to be done within a within uh, enunciated timelines and we cannot have uh, a it seemingly uh, small financial uh, gain uh, that that will uh, effectively result in in a delay on on a greater scale you have, uh, and by mean by you, I mean the legal system here, not just uh, the, the Criminal Lawyers Association background, but I think police services too. And I, I, I share your concern that, that they have to tread lightly, police services in situations like this. Uh, but I know that some indiv- individual officers have spoken out. And there's one particular incident that was quoted in the story here of a, an investigation, an autopsy that was actually delayed by a couple of days uh, because of this transfer to Toronto. And this is before this unit was even announced to be shut down. So there was a concern there about the efficacy of the investigation and, and the timing of that. Uh, so when they come back and they say this is going to be a better system and we're going to save $3 million a year, it seems to me as if you're falling under the same umbrella that some other provincial announcements uh, have been made over the last couple of years. The autism program comes to mind where they they, they, they touted the, the savings that were going to be made uh, without a whole lot of reference to the efficacy of what was going to be left there in, in, in the system. Uh, and and when we're talking about something as, as intricate and detailed as this and so valuable to investigations and, and to outcomes, uh, you'd like to think that the efficiency of the system would trump the cost of it, yet that doesn't seem to be the case with the way the government's operating. They just seem more concerned about the bottom line, and that's got to be troubling. Well, it's, it, I, I completely agree with you, Bill. I mean, look, it's not to address the issue in a very in a partisan way, but there's been mistakes made on on whether it's on the liberal side or the conservative side in terms of decisions that seemed to be the right decision uh, and then ended up being blunders, whether it's the 407 or whether it's the uh, gas plants or whether it was the, the $6 million man at Hydro and then the resulting cost that seemed to surmount that and then it affects uh, the, the, the overall uh, towards the taxpayer. With pathology, it's not just the criminal courts. It's post-operative issues. You know, pathologists have to deal with when mishaps happened on the on the operating table. They have to deal with issues where there's a a homicide in the community. They also have to deal with the, in in my opinion, the most tragic, and that's where uh, children are affected and uh, you know, families locally are going to be impacted. And and I, you know, I can't even begin to imagine the heart wrenching. Uh, you know that will take place when the family isn't able to uh, contact that pathologist or that that medical examiner that's been uh, in last contact with their child or their loved one, and it's it's a big issue. And Hamilton has many uh, medic medical care facets that uh, feed into the system, and this is this is going to leave a big gap. Was it an efficient system, the way that's being run right now in Hamilton? Uh, where, where, for instance, the Criminal Lawyers Association, where police, where, was everybody satisfied with the results and with the way the system was operating? When it's local, you're able to address the issue face-to-face quickly. And there, there, were, there weren't issues in terms of, from our perspective. So from the Criminal Lawyers perspective, our members had, had direct access, uninterrupted, and, and were quite content with it. Uh, the reference you made at the beginning of our conversation here was that uh, there was a commitment made, and I guess we have to, I, I guess, weigh in exactly just you know how direct that that commitment was. But uh, there was uh, the uh, chief pathologist, uh, Dr. Pullman, uh, six months ago, I guess, in an, an interview with the Hamilton Spectator, suggested they had no plans at all to shut this operation down. Uh, yet this announcement comes along at, uh, late last week, uh, which is certainly contradictory to that. Uh, at the same time, uh, the uh, same doctor, the chief coroner, suggests that uh, there are no plans to shut down operations or alter operations in either Kingston, London, Ottawa, Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury. And as a matter of fact, they're going to open a new one up north in Thunder Bay. Uh, so I know you don't want to get political about this, but boy, this sure sounds political. Bill, you're, you know, it's hard, obviously, not to look at that angle. It's a, it's a, it's a relevant factor. Uh, these, this is a, it's obviously a very complicated um closure to shut down an entire unit in arguably one of the fastest growing cities uh, in in Canada and 
Uh, you're right. I mean, critics are going to address that issue in terms of uh, what was the rationale and will it ever become transparent as to why that decision was made. That comes down to our elected officials, whether it's from the uh, NDP or from our from the conservative side, members of our provincial parliament to come forward and, and state, you know, this is why it happened. Uh, this was the thought process, and this is why there was a change in the position. Uh, if, it, if, if you aren't able to provide that kind of transparency, then you're going to leave uh, that, that angle out there that, that it may have been partisan. To your knowledge, was there any consultation with, uh, with some of the stakeholder groups in, involved in this? I'm not aware of any, I'm not aware of any consultation, but uh, that doesn't mean it didn't take place. At this point, we don't have any response publicly that would indicate that there was uh, consultation to address some of the important issues that you've raised, Bill. It, what's, what, is there any recourse at all, I guess, uh, left open to you right now, or is this a fait accompli? No, there, there definitely is an attempt for recourse. I, I understand that uh, our local hospital administrators have uh, filed an appeal and are, uh, are, are seeking reconsideration, but uh, really without political pressure or public pressure uh, on this issue, um, it will be difficult to uh, reverse it. The concern here, of course, is that this is a, a service that doesn't have an impact on, on the greater population, but it does have a, a significant impact on populations that have been uh, ill-affected by whatever, some of the consequences that we've already talked about here. Uh, and to suggest that when you need that sort of service and when you need that those answers quickly and efficiently, uh, it sounds as if that, that that's... I'm not going to suggest the service is totally gone because it's simply saying everybody's going to get out of Toronto right now, but it's going to make for a less efficient system here in the city, and that's that's somewhat problematic. That uh, This is basically, to use the, the political phrase, a reduction in service level. You're, you're absolutely right. It's a shift. It's a shift. Um, it, it's going to be a reduction. I mean, I think the, the most um, uh, emotional component is going to, and I've said this already, but I'll say it again, is the... Uh, impact that uh, heaven forbid we we fall into that situation but your parent loved one child friend uh, falls under these types of dire straits in their life and you are left with the uh, uh, with the questions and trying to seek answers and unable to navigate through the busy downtown toronto network um, yes absolutely that's a reduction in services hamilton is uh, it requires these services. We have an, a, a baby boom aging population. We have senior care facilities here. Uh, and when death, loss of life occurs in our community, our citizens are going to demand answers. The public's going to want to know what took place. And if the concern from our law enforcement officials is that the delay is taking place, if the concern is from those uh, who work within the justice system that there's going to be delays taking place, then we do require, in, in my opinion, a, uh, a reconsideration or at least a statement from our local representatives as to the rationale for the decision. Exactly. Uh, Vikram, more to come on this, I'm sure. Thanks so much for this. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Appreciate this today. Thank you, Bill. Have a good morning. You too. Vikram Singh, president of the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is serious stuff, though. Uh, Iran has now broken the uh, limit set by the 2015 nuclear deal by enriching uranium today by 4.5%, uh, which is obviously uh, raising the level of concern in the Middle East and right around the world because of the impact that this could have, uh, especially since uh, the Iranian government has suggested that, okay, we're not finished yet. Uh, they, they may all ramp this all the way up. Uh, to uh, weapons-grade levels, uh, not suggesting they're going to, but they say they have the possibility and they're thinking about it. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. I rather, I guess obviously someone who's got a rather tainted view on this, suggesting, look, Iran was going to do this anyway. Uh, the fact that Trump backed out of that deal is, is of little consequence. I, I, I don't buy that, do you? Well, no. Uh, this... <laughs> We have to remind ourselves what we're into here. Iran and uh, the United States reached a deal in 2015 under the guidance of the Obama administration, but uh, it was an international deal. That is, it was uh, supported by the United Nations Security Council in 2231, and also Germany and the EU. So this is an international agreement which includes extensive monitoring of the commitments made so there is a lot of uh, a lot of people on the ground of course we assume satellites in the air 
monitoring this, and everybody along the way has said, uh, yes, Iran is in keeping with what they agreed to do. The problem is what they agreed to do and what they didn't agree on other areas has always been in contention. It's always made me ambivalent on the one hand. Great, they're knocked off a direct path, bumped away from a direct path to achieving a nuclear weapon in the immediate future, but they were allowed to continue testing. Their, non, uh, their other kinds of behavior in the, in the region that wasn't touched, and so forth. So it's always been a mixed view, but on balance I've always supported the idea that it's a whole lot better to get them off the path of reaching a nuclear weapon, and that's what uh, Trump pulled out of, saying he's not going to verify it. And then one year later, this is where we are today, one year later uh, the Europeans had been in negotiation with Iran to stay within what they agreed to in the Iran nuclear deal, they have been doing so until this announcement, saying, look, we've given everybody a lot of time on this, a full year since Trump backed out. The Europeans, it's, it's a fascinating thing, uh, situation we're in, Bill. The Europeans were trying to find a way to get around the American-imposed sanctions, that is, unilateral sanctions imposed by the U.S. They were trying to find a way around that, and now the U.S. is saying, you know, what we really want is for Iran to stay within the confines of the deal they signed, and we want what the Europeans are doing to succeed. Well, suggesting that there's mixed messages coming out of the White House, I guess, would be rather redundant, wouldn't it? Uh, I think it's hard to, how do we put this as uh, professionally as possible? There seems to be a lack of coherence in the approach of the Trump administration to their policy uh, regarding their policy on Iran. And, and this is what everyone's talking about, there seems to be no off-ramp in the uh, visible in terms of getting us out of a looming crisis. Which explains, I guess, some of the frustrations we've heard, although anecdotally from people like Tillerson and, and Madison and so many others simply said, like, a, uh, you know, I don't know who to listen to. This thing seems to change by, by the hour. It, it, and again, I think it underscores what we've talked about in so many other circumstances, Elliot, where, where Trump's policy basically depends on the last person he talked to. And it, sadly, it seems as if a lot of the time that's John Bolton. Well, the, uh, the key distinction here is that the official position of the United States is that the U.S. wants a change in Iranian behavior. That is, they are in, undoubtedly Iran is, as, a, as the U.S. says, the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism, and it's operating in ways uh, the term malign behavior throughout the Middle East, inimical to not just U.S. but Western interests, including ours. So all of that is there. But the other phrase is, does uh, America really want not a change in behavior but a change in regime? And the split between Bolton uh, apparent, and, and again, apparent split between Bolton and Trump and others is that some people, right at the minute, including Trump, say, no, we, what we want is a change of behavior in the regime, and it's long been suspected, based on what he said publicly, repeatedly, Bolton really wants a change in the regime itself. But that's never going to be stated, or is it? Well, he said so. <laughs> well, Bolton doesn't have a problem with that. No. Uh, he, this is the same guy that was suggesting military intervention, too. Yes. Uh, so now now publicly, of course, he'll, he'll say, my policy is whatever the president says it is. So he's not going public against, against the uh, policy at, at the minute of whatever that minute is of American policy as articulated by Trump. But there's a deep suspicion that he and Pompeo and many others uh, would really like to change a regime, and that the purpose of the American sanctions and pulling out of the deal in the first place was to squeeze the, uh, the regime itself and the population enough that the population would revolt against the regime and we would be into a different ballgame. But the different ballgame we may be heading toward is America may now face an Iran which is, Iran which is seeking actually nuclear weapons. That would be a game-changer. And, um, and an Iran that uh, has no interest in sitting down to the table under these circumstances. Are they doing this uh, because of the sanctions? And we'll go back, as you've articulated, and don't, don't 
great description of exactly what happened a year ago when Trump pulled out of this, and and, and the more sanctions came in place. But is the 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 ramping up of of this program here in the uranium that and as I said, it could they're talking about pushing it up around twenty percent, which puts them very much in the neighborhood of weapons grade levels uh, of ninety percent. That this is thumbing their nose at the U.S. or, or is this an actual acceleration uh, and, a, and a threat to the peace in that in that part of the world? Well, there's more than one dimension to this. The easiest uh, way to interpret this is this is not actually aimed at the U.S. That what the Iranians are doing is putting more pressure on the Europeans to actually come away, find a way to deliver on their effort to get around the sanctions. What Iran wants now is out of those sanctions which are biting. Of course, we also don't want to go to war. So you can interpret this as one small step along the way. With the, Remember, they said also every 60 days we're going to take other steps away from this deal. So uh, they're saying to the Europeans, you said you would get us out of this situation. We've, we've kept our side. We've stayed inside the parameters of the deal. Now you have to deliver away. So the sanctions relief, which is what they want, is delivered. So that's one way to view it. But then you can also view it in the wider context that, remember, Iran and the United States are at a very high level of tension anyway. And they are, with Iran, um, you know, accused of putting those limpet mines on ships. So mining, a lot of this has to do clearly with oil in ways which are not visible and clearly articulated. Iran is in position to choke off the world's oil supplies uh, to a significant extent, and they are saying, we are in a de facto conflict with America already, and this nuclear small step is just one more ratcheting up of the tension. Well, and there, I'm glad you're connecting the dots here, because the incidents in the Persian Gulf over the last couple of days uh, are, has to be part of this big picture here. Uh, and, and I think it's one of the reasons why an awful lot of people are saying, look, I know Trump's saying he doesn't want a war, but he's certainly walking towards one, uh, and I don't know whether he's doing it willingly or with blinders on. I'm not sure what's going on, but by ramping up in the, the military presence and, and some of the, the conflicts that we've had in the last couple of days, uh, it, it, some people are thinking there's an inevitability that this is going to wind up with some sort of a military action. The uh, concern right now is that the, the two sides are going to back into a war uh, that neither side says it wants, so that right now... Everybody's talking about, or at least I'm talking about, and others who are watching it closely saying, where's the off-ramp? How do we get down from where we are now with the nuclear component being, I don't know, the ticking time bomb, the ultimate uh, underneath all this, but it's only one part of a much broader uh, situation of potential conflict. Where is the possibility that the U.S. and Iran will not accidentally, inadvertently, put themselves in a position of war, which both sides say they don't want. So the possibility then exists that the off-ramp here, and what we just saw today, might make it more complicated, is Trump has said, hey, all I want to do is talk. Sit down and reopen negotiation. Obama wrote a terrible deal. I want a better deal. And he's certainly finding a ham-handed way of saying he wants to renegotiate a deal. Uh, and the Iranians are now putting it, being put in a position saying, even if we wanted to talk to you, now you're making it impossible to do so. Well, especially because, of, as you say, the increased presence that they have there. I mean, you know, that was exacerbated by the shooting down of the drone the other day. Yes. Uh, and, of course, the U.S. maintains that it was over international waters. Iran says, no, it wasn't. It was over our airspace. Uh, they said Gary Powers wasn't spying on the Russians, too. But, I mean, you know, th- th- that's, that's the standard response in situations yes. like this. But, obviously, somebody's pushing the envelope here. Yes. I'm afraid both sides are pushing the envelope in ways which they assume the other side will not see as a cause belli that they're pushing it in a way that in each side saying we can get away with this we can we can ratchet it up this way and then that way and another way and it won't actually lead to war all it does is lead to the point where the two sides will have to talk of course it might work but that is a very dangerous way to approach diplomatic relations with nuclear war, uh, nuclear weapons 
uh, hanging in the balance. Well, exactly. And and to go back to that day when the drone was shot down, I mean, you know, it was interesting. Trump's initial response, and don't forget that was also the day that uh, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, was in Washington. Right. Uh, so even the, the the photo opportunity he had with right. the Prime Minister kind of bled into the update. And at that time, Trump said, "Look at I, I think it was a rogue. I don't think it was really the government to right. do it." So uh, so that was that was one of the calmer heads, I guess, that had given him that information. But by later in the afternoon, he was right back to it. No, this is this is the Iranian government's responsibility. So, again, who's the last person to talk to him, or what's the latest intelligence he's getting? Um, again, I want to come back to the one word which underlies almost anything when it comes to the Middle East in terms of the geopolitics, and that's the word oil. Underneath all of this is oil politics in ways which are not readily visible, which transcend or, or undercut what we consider, you and I and everyone else, the normal geopolitical considerations, this power versus that power. But the world's lifeline is still oil, and that lifeline largely runs, or in very important ways, runs getting the stuff out of the Middle East. And now Iran has de facto control over both of the exit, uh, exit ways out of the Middle East if they wish to use it. And so there's a lot of what I'm suggesting is there are forces at play which... It's very difficult for us to discuss, but we know must be affecting all of the, con- the conversations. In terms of the nuclear issue, the farther away you are, like us sitting here, we can say, well, this is just a tactic. The Iranians are just raising the temperature. They, this is not, uh, but the closer you are, for example, if you're in Israel, and what we hear publicly, or if you're in Saudi Arabia or in, in, the, in their allies in the region, those are frontline states. The idea that Iran might indeed end up becoming a nuclear weapon state with the capacity to deliver them, and remember they've been allowed to maintain their missile, uh, ballistic missile uh, defense or, 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 uh, delivery systems to continue to evolve under this terms of this deal, which is one of the complaints about it. If you're living there, this is not an idle matter of speculation. It isn't about oil either. This is an existential matter of your existence. How much pressure is the United States getting from those allies, from Saudi, excuse me, Saudi Arabia, and certainly from Israel, uh, to do something about this? And and uh, and I'm wondering how this is having an impact on the policy. I mean, Trump mentioned the other day that he did not think the United States had any moral responsibility to uh, protect the, the Persian Gulf and the oil supply there. That uh, And Iran, of course, says that that's their domain and they should be doing this anyway. Yet, despite Trump's uh, denial that, that they, they have any moral obligation, he's increased military presence there anyway. Yes, significantly. That, that aircraft strike, <laughs> uh, aircraft carrier strike group is in itself, all by itself, potent. But a map of the region, if you're in Iran looking out and saying, where are there American troops, where are foreign forces arrayed against us potentially, it's all around them. So there's potential, um, uh, this is one of my concerns, the potential for a lot of firepower in a confined area, in a place of high tension, where miscalculation, stupidity, or a deliberate act that wasn't meant to be this way but might end up that way, all of that now is very much in play. So where do we go on here? I mean, Iran is is going down the road here, and nobody seems to want to stop. Well, they want to stop them, but they don't seem to be able to. Uh, and and they're not getting a whole lot of of action from the United States here. I mean, I hear the same rhetoric from Trump saying, "Well, all we want to do is talk about this," but but where's the outreach? Where's the attempt to try to find some conciliatory ground? Well, there's two sides to this, and here's where I'll try to put some hope. Uh, it's it's a, a weird kind of hope. We're in an election year in the U.S., and Donald Trump is basically broadcasting to the world, I don't want to go to war. I want to find a way out of this. Let's find a way out of this. On the Iranian side, they know that a war, if it should break out, would be disastrous for them, the end of the regime probably. And they, too, have a high motivation to find a way, despite the bellicosity and the kinds of things you and I are talking about, the ratcheting up of, of the nuclear capacity potential, they want a way out, and when you have two sides that are really anxious not to proceed further, maybe they'll find a way. 
Then there's the uh, the wag the dog theory, and I don't want to get too heavily into that. Uh, you know, with the election coming up about a year or so from now, right. uh, there are, seems to be some indications that there could be a bit of a downturn in the economy, which is always right. bad news for any incumbent president. And and there are those cynics, Elliot, that will say, well, you know, nothing like a foreign war to rally the people around the sitting president. Yes, but you want to pick your spots. In the case of the Middle East, uh, yes, there would be pressure on from Saudi Arabia and others on the U.S., Come, come on and do this. And of course, Israel's, you know, Israel's not pressing for a war because they are a frontline state, but they are pressing for a change in the behavior of the Iranians, and they don't want to be caught in, in the front line on this. So the possibility does exist that, yes, let's look around the world and find a, a nice little war at, at election time to rally around the flag, but is the Middle East the best place for that? And the answer is likely no. And another small factor in this, by the way, is the U.S. is really less dependent on Middle East oil than they used to be, but it's still very important. So how about someplace closer to home, like, I don't know, Venezuela? There's always a possibility, as you've suggested, that a convenient war uh, would be of some utility to, to the embattled president. But, in fact, he's in pretty good place now without going to war, I think. And he's also promised his base he's getting... He's getting um, the U.S. out of these foreign wars. That was his, one of his campaign planks. These never-ending wars that the Democrats get us in, oh, and the Bush people, like, we don't care about them either, all the way back to Reagan, we don't care about them. He's promised his base not to go to war. Uh, so does he need a convenient war? Hmm. We'll have to stay tuned and watch the polls. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher in the Falkland Islands, but there's a long list of uh, very incriminating evidence about and that. The and by the way, just, just as a side note on a beautiful day, there's a huge submarine race going on in the world, in Asia and elsewhere, because submarines can deliver uh, potent weapons at, in a covert way. Uh, they can gather intelligence, but they can also deliver uh, a, lot of, a lot of firepower. And it, it, which happened in the Falklands, which triggered that war. Exactly. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. <laughs> a nice cheerful way to end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Living on a high note. That's great. <laughs> Have a nice day. You too. Elliot Tepper at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.